An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very happy to welcome our guest, Amy Boris. Amy is the Executive Director of the Council of Institutional Investors, or CII, the United States' foremost group that represents asset owners and some asset managers around corporate governance issues. Prior to joining CII, Amy had a 25-year career as one of Business Week's leading journalists with postings in London, Tokyo, and Washington. As someone who's known Amy for a long time, let me just say that she is soft-spoken, but always armed with facts and logic, as well as the implicit power that heading an organization whose members and associate members invest 40 trillion, yes, trillion with a T, and represent 15 million workers, retirees, and their families can bring. So when Amy talks, those on both Wall Street and Capitol Hill pay attention. Those dulcet tones are also forceful. So welcome, Amy. John, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for that very kind introduction. My pleasure. We share a very similar background. You were an English major, an editor on your college newspaper, and then went into journalism. Check, check, and check for me. <laughs> Though to be fair, you did have a much more distinguished journalism career than I did. 25 years at Business Week. As I said, a variety of overseas capitals plus Washington. And you even won an Overseas Press Club Award. Then you went into finance with an emphasis on corporate governance, now as executive director of CII. I went into finance, wrote in New York City's pitch investments, and was once an officer of CII, though that actually predated your joining the council. So let me ask you, do you think there's something about journalism that helps you understand the dynamics of the marketplace? Now, I'm not talking about picking stocks or why the market moves up or down. But the power relationships between the various players, from asset owners and asset managers to business CEOs to stock exchanges to regulators, does journalism provide a way of thinking or a framework to examine those power relationships? That's a really interesting question. I, I don't think journalism per se does, but I think the 10 plus years I spent reporting from Business Week's Washington, D.C. Bureau did hone my awareness of and appreciation for power dynamics. You know, I covered several beats. I, I started foreign policy, I covered trade, Congress, technology policy, the SEC. And for all of those, politics or who has the power to influence and shape decisions was really critical, you know, to the story, to what happened. So I, I think it did give me an appreciation for, the, for power dynamics gen generally. And then at CII, which thank you for the, the introduction there, CII is a nonprofit, nonpartisan association. 
that focuses on strong shareholder rights, good corporate governance, and what we consider sensible financial market regulation. CRI is a big tent. And I think to lead an organization like that, you have to be comfortable interacting with a broad range of players. Everybody from corporate securities lawyers to investment professionals like yourself and fund trustees and public interest groups. And as a journalist, I, I spent more than two decades bouncing around in different beats in different cities. So I think I developed a pretty good appreciation for and ability to work with different kinds of individuals, different people from different walks of life and with different perspectives and different interests. You also seem to have a sense, not just of what's going on today, but an ability to see how trends are developing. For instance, though, I, I mentioned you won an Overseas Press Club Award. In fact, I think you won a couple. But one of them was in 1991 for a Business Week feature entitled, and I quote, China's Ugly Export, Secret Prison Labor. So China, forced labor, modern slavery, supply chain, these could be ripped from the headlines today, right? Clearly, Absolutely. it's squarely in the spotlight of today's ESG or environmental, social, and governance focus, but it was 30 years ago and 14 years before the phrase ESG was even invented. So has anything changed in the 30 years since you started looking at those issues? Oh, well, where do we start? But, but let's talk about, to go back to what really isn't new, is attention to social issues. If you think back, investor activism to end apartheid in South Africa started or dates back to the 1970s, I believe. But the difference is that these were always fringe issues in the investment world. And what is new, I think, is how mainstream environmental and social issues have become, along with corporate governance. I, I saw a survey earlier this year that found that three quarters of investment managers now consider ESG factors to be integral to sound investing. I, I don't think you would have even imagined a survey like that, you know, 30 years ago. And even in just the 15 years that I've been at CII, you know, where we started in 20, 2006, corporate governance was kind of this little backwater still. But what really changes that it's gone mainstream. And what I mean by that in one sense is mainstream asset managers, the big indexers, that the largest active funds have stepped up. They take voting seriously. They have teams of people devoted to engaging with companies in their portfolios on ESNG issues that people, you know, hang on Larry Fink, BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink's annual letters in January. These tend to move markets. And then companies themselves, I think boards themselves have changed and the role of the director has changed. As you know, this Spencer Stewart does an index every year of kind of a snapshot of, of boards at the largest companies, S&P 500. And this year's index found that 30% of all S&P 500 directors were women, and it was only 16% a decade ago. So there's been change in the composition of boards. And just in also, I think, in the nature of, of corporate boards, they're less clubby, they're less inclined to rubber stamp whatever the CEO says. They used to sort of never want to talk to their shareholders, and now that's a prerequisite for the job uh, for most directors. And we have, thank, we have to thank Sam Payboats for that. And they oversee a wider range of risks, you know, everything from cyber to climate change risk. Um, just going back to corporate governance, which is CIR's, you know, bread and butter. That's the heart of what we do. And corporate governance practices that 
seemed radical 15 years ago are now standard or standard operating practice. Things like electing directors by majority vote in uncontested elections and declassified boards, de-staggered boards. Um, this, I mentioned Sam pay votes and it, having an independent chair. That was a rarity 15 years ago. It's much more than norm now. So there's a lot that has changed. I assume all those are positive. So let me ask you about some possible negatives and backsliding and what still needs to be done. CII's initial founding had a shareholder bill of rights and it was one share, one vote. And we now have lots mm -hmm. of companies like, well, it's now Meta, but Facebook and it's now Alphabet, but, you know, that have dual class shares or multiple class shares mm -hmm. where your capital at risk is not proportional to your ability to vote. Executive compensation has been an issue forever. So we may have say I pay and disclosure, but I think many people would think that the increments and the income disparity is at best unseemly and at worst demotivating and unethical. So what still needs to be done in the corporate governance world? And are those just things we're going to have to, people will live with because we have so far and the capital markets seem to be doing fine, or will there be change in those areas as well? That's a really good, good point. And I like to think of corporate governance as, I always say it's a marathon, not a sprint. So even if things are dark now, we shouldn't assume that's the way they're always going to be. And even on the first issue you mentioned, the dual glass capital structures. This has been a focus of CII for since from the beginning. And the disappointing news is that in the last 20 years or so, we've seen, you know, an explosion of these, particularly at tech companies where founders can demand and get extraordinary rights to hold on to or control to, to super voting shares. But at the same time, we and we recognize that this is a tough battle. So while CII, we stand by one share one vote as the optimal structure. We have in the last five years or so pushed for, you know, we basically said, if you're going to do this, build in a sunset provision, a time-based sunset provision, because the research shows that while there could be, there often is a share price premium at IPO for dual class companies that fades and go, fades to a negative over several years. So we have pushed for companies, dual class companies to um, incorporate sunsets of no more than seven years in their governing documents. And lo and behold, we're actually having an impact. This has become a talking point and lawyers are advising companies to do this, that you know, if they go have, have dual class. And this year for the first time and the first half of 2021, about half of companies that went public, that IPO'd with dual class structures had sunset provisions and they were of reasonable length, you know, seven or 10 years. So I, while it would be much more preferable for Congress to give the SEC statutory authority to require stock exchanges to have listing standards that require one share, one vote, you know, we'll keep fighting on a priority basis for companies to do this on their own. And, we think we're having an impact, slow, you know, slow and steady. So that's dual class, but you, you, there are other issues. You open the question by saying, what else do we need to do? And as Gary Gensler, the SEC chair has said time and again, investors want and need consistent, comparable decision, useful disclosures on things like climate change risk and human capital um, metrics. 
And my own personal view is, is there should also be disclosure of spending from the corporate treasury on, on politics and political activities. So, you know, we, I hope to see some progress there. Uh, and the biggest issue I think is the way our proxy system works, our system for voting shares. And it's bigger than just voting shares. It's the way shares are held, traded, settled, and voted. It's cumbersome, it's Byzantine, it's layered, it's very complicated, and votes are lost. Sometimes they're not accounted for. Yeah. We need technology to, to, to straighten that out. I don't want to get overly technical because proxy plumbing right. can um, look like a plumbing diagram with lots of joints and mm -hmm. side valves, and it gets very complicated. But do you think there's a role for distributed finance in solving this, for instance, in settling trades and tracing proxy votes, if you were the techno wizard of the world, is there already a technological solution that you could say, just do this and we could fix it. And it's just that there are incumbents in the way. There are lots of incumbents. Who, uh, there are lots of vested interests in the current system, but there are efforts underway to use blockchain and other distributed technologies in the private markets to track who owns what at what time in a way where there's no intermediary. You know, again, like you, I don't want to be too technical about this, but I think that their technology holds the promise of streamlining the way shares are traded and voted and that we should be experimenting with that. The SEC should be encouraging that in some way. It will take an awful lot. It's a politically difficult, a big political challenge because there's so many vested interests in keeping the system the way it is. Let's move up from the granular to larger picture issues. Do you think the alignment between the ultimate beneficiaries, the people who invest their money through your members and associate members and the asset management industry has improved or deteriorated in the last five to 10 years? Oh, I think it's definitely improved. And I think you can see that in the change in the way asset managers, many asset managers are voting on certain shareholder proposals that they routinely would vote against in the past. This is not a comment to say that every shareholder proposal is worthy of a, a four vote, but I think that asset managers are hearing from their, their institutional clients and are more responsive. Uh, to them because they have to be, you know, clients can take their money and go elsewhere. At the same time, I, it's, it can be a real challenge because institutional investors, um, asset owners are not monolithic. They have different views on issues. And a few years ago, um, after that horrible shooting at Parkland in Florida, at the high school, I was sitting with someone from one of the largest asset managers. We were talking about what this asset managers was hearing for clients. And it was, you know, for every, from every pension fund who called and said, don't put my money in guns, get my money out of gun companies. There was another one who said, don't you dare divest from gun manufacturers or gun retailers. So it's a challenge to decide which of your clients do you, do you heed? Well, let's follow up on that. You mentioned political spending and you just mentioned, mm -hmm. obviously a political issue. And you also said that. CII follows a big tent philosophy and your members aren't monolithic. And you said that CII is nonpartisan. That said, one of the most significant new issues today is not 
gun control or abortion or taxes or voting rights, but in effect, the bifurcation of the economy, the polarization of the United mm -hmm. States starting to affect the business community of the United States in a way that honestly it never has before. I mean, a recent New York Times article postulated that the U.S. could be heading towards a business landscape with red and blue companies. And, and you noted the anti-apartheid battles and I was involved in those. And the history of corporate governance going back to Industries India Corporation is filled with battles about politics between investors, corporations, and lawmakers. But the scope of the issues have changed. Mm. Previous battles were circumscribed in scope, you know, South Africa. Today, it seems to be about everything. Do you give to lawmakers who supported the January 6th insurrection? As I said, voting rights, abortion seems to be coming to the fore again, taxes. So given the nonpartisan nature of CNI, I'm not going to ask you to take a position on any of those, although you're free to do so if you like, but I, I am asking, how should investors think about these issues? Is there a way for investors and businesses for that matter to stick to consensus issues anymore? Or do we not have a choice in that if investors don't engage, others will make the rules such as Texas tried to punish any investor who divests from fossil fuel companies. So how should investors react to all of this? It's a really good question. Investors are free to engage the portfolio companies on issues they care about. But I think shareholders should do so with a degree of awareness of the limitations of this kind of private ordering, ultimately achieving broad societal goals, such as narrowing the inequality gap or mitigating the risk of climate change, are beyond the ability of individual companies to solve. Um, they're more appropriately the responsibility of government. I, if I could wave a wand, it would be to encourage investors to get companies to work collectively, either through trade, their own trade associations, business roundtable or something, to collectively press government to address these key critical national or societal issues. Because nobody wants to step up and stand out necessarily. It's always risky. Um, but, you know, but maybe collectively business, that's how business could have an impact. I think it's a really interesting question whether the threats to American democracy from um, events like the January 6th, um, 2020 insurrection of the Capitol and the voter suppression legislation that you mentioned, whether these amount to a s systemic economic, whether they are actually systemic political risks, economic and political risks and financial market risks and, and how they could be. How do we mitigate them? Um, you know, the, what, what's, what, what can investors do? I, I don't think that question's been answered. I think we're all kind of feeling our way through that, but I don't, I, I really don't see how we sidestep it. I, I, I don't think in, I, CEOs used to say, Hey, not, that's not my, that's not what I was, you know, appointed to do. I'm running the company, but, um, really starting about five years ago, I think because of the vacuum in Washington. On, on key societal issues, CEOs have felt like they had to step up. And once you start, it, it's, it's kind of a slippery slope. It's now, we now expect companies to take positions on these issues. Well, I think there are two other things there that I'd like to get your opinion on. Mm -hmm. First, just on CEOs, I think, isn't it also just true that you now have these massive companies like Facebook, which, or Google, that 
have more of an effect on the average citizen than government does on a day-to-day -day basis. And so in effect, they become quasi-governmental. And the second thing I'd like your opinion on is you said, do you think investors have to um, step up in collaboration and, you know, we could do this like an old high school debate team resolved investors are already doing that cop 26 would not have come about had investors not supported Paris and now Glasgow and investors are, you mentioned Larry Fink's letter. Don't you think all those sort of things, there's a feedback loop to government and how they react. So those are the two questions around those issues. So I'd like to address that one first. I was covering technology policy some 20 years ago when all these Facebook and Google, they were all just, you know, they're around or they were new companies. And the ethos in Washington was, oh, let's, let's protect, let's let nurture these companies. They, so from the beginning, there was just this, let's not regulate them. Let's give them a pass. And we, we wake up today and there's not much regulation, or at least it's nowhere near what we it probably should be at this point. So there's a lot of catching up to do. And it's, but it's not a U.S.-only problem. These are companies that operate globally. And Facebook's, Facebook doesn't stop at the water's edge. So we have a problem when, when countries are going in different directions with regulation of technology. We need to somehow find a, a global solution to these. And that, that's hard. The second question was, don't you think that the investment community already is doing this in collaboration when you have PRI's uh, Principles for Responsible Investments, Stewardship 2.0, rewards investor campaigns that join other investors in coalition and with stakeholders. So, for instance, the New Zealand Superannuation Fund combining with the governments of New Zealand and France and $13 trillion worth of assets under management to talk to Facebook and Amazon and others about not live streaming terror attacks. And so aren't investors sort of already doing this and does it have an effect on government when investors do come together? Well, it, it has some effect. I'm not saying it's nothing. I, I think that it's certainly gotten attention. You can see that at ExxonMobil, for example. But I think we could be so much more effective or we need to be much more effective at the federal level, federal policy level, because, you know, you can also have the case where companies are just, um, you know, energy companies just sell off their most polluting assets to a private buyer. That doesn't solve a problem for climate change. That just burns your holdings in one company, the carbon footprint of one company that, that there are limits to what investors can, can do on that. Fair enough. So let's finish with some more upbeat, quick questions. You grew up in New Jersey and you're a Springsteen fan. That's right. First, have you ever seen him live? And if so, how many times? Because no Springsteen's fan only sees him once. Absolutely. I've lost count. Um, I can't, it's not in the high numbers because I lived overseas for most of um, the years that I would be uh, probably jumping around to concerts. But that said, I, I have seen him probably more than a dozen times in person. And that includes Wembley Stadium when I lived in London and the Tokyo Dome when I lived in Japan. And I wish I could see him again once we'll go at some point, so, we'll go back to concert. What's your favorite Springsteen song? Oh, um, I suppose if I had to pick just one, it would be Thunder Road. I just, it's just, 
a wonderful romantic ballad and I've word perfect on it. <clears throat> if it were dance tracks, maybe Sherry Darling or Rosalita. I don't know if the parties dancing to this. Is there a particular Springsteen lyric that speaks to you? Oh boy, lots of them. Not, you know, listen, I, Springsteen, I come from New Jersey, but that's, let's be honest. Um, I grew up in the suburbs. I went to college. That, the most we have in common is New Jersey and the fact we both love the Jersey Shore. But his open road, rebel persona, that's not me, but I love it. I mean, I love escaping to that. If I could uh, point to one, it's from his, you know, perhaps from his 1992 album, Lucky Town. It's, it's a song that has this refrain, I'll wait for you, should I fall behind, wait for me. And it reflects his kind of, I think it was a wedding song or something like that, a love song, but it really does reflect his abiding humanity. And the, the theme he comes back to again about uh, uh, the importance of looking out for each other, taking care of each other, that does speak to me. Okay. What's exciting to you right now, either professionally or personally? Oh, so professionally, you know, it's just at this really interesting time in corporate governance. You think about, I sometimes joke that I am whiplash because, you know, from 2016 to, to, from the Trump era, it was all about organizations like CII playing defense, right? corporate, corporate governance and shareholder rights are under attack all over the place. And then there's this change of administration. All of a sudden it's okay to, not as only okay to talk about the need for provide disclosures and climate change risk. It's like the, the motif of the entire Biden administration. And we have a SEC chair, Gary Gensler, who I joke is the energizer buddy of SEC chairs. And I mean that in the most complimentary way. He's probably one of the most ambitious and pro-investor SEC chiefs since Arthur Levitt. Um, he just has a long to-do list and a lot of it coincides with CII's own advocacy priorities. So there's a lot that I think could happen that would be beneficial for investors. At the same time, I think we have to expect that there'll be legal challenges to a lot of what the SEC is about to do or has done. There are already legal challenges. And so assume that everything the SEC adopts in this administration will stand. So you have whiplash. Being executive director of any membership group is stressful being executive director of CII is particularly stressful. How do you relax? So I like to run, but I'm a wimp. I don't run in the winter because I hate cold weather. And so a year ago, I got a Peloton bike and, and I really like it. It kind of get, gets me going in the morning or at night. I like to exercise. And um, like a lot of people in COVID, I um, stepped up my cooking and when I work, past two years we've been cocooning at home, um, my family has kind of gotten back to watching TV shows together. You and I probably remember the old days when there was like, there was a cable and families sat down after dinner and watched all the family or whatever together that we didn't. And now thanks to COVID, we kind of do it a little bit again. So Ted Lasso, Only Murders in the Building, Mayor of East Towns or some of the ones I've been watching. And of course I'm addicted to succession because that's all about hope for governance. Thank you for reminding me of my age. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> you were an English major. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading Sally Rooney's latest novel. She's an Irish writer called Beautiful World, Where Are You? Because it's my book club's hair. Um, I'm not crazy about it, I have to admit. So I would, for this podcast, I, I would recommend a couple of our other book club picks from 
recent years. And one is a gentleman in Moscow by Amor Chalms. I'm pronouncing his name right. It's one of the best, most interesting, most enjoyable, never wanted to end novels that I've read. And then Delia Owens, Where the Crawdads Sing, which I listen to because I do like, you know, there's a great no uh, narrator. I like uh, books in you know, audibles. And uh, that was a wonderful book to listen to. Last question. If you were given the ability to whisper one piece of advice to everyone in the world, what would it be? I thought you were going to ask me this. <laughs> be kind. I think particularly, and I know that sounds like pablum, but particularly in the past 20, 21 months, I think we've all hopefully learned to give each other some space to, to think of others a little bit more, to just be kind to each other. I hope that you all can be. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Amy Boris, Executive Director of the Council of Institutional Investors, who has both a journalist's analytical eye and an insider's seat in Washington. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.